Well, this morning, we're coming to the end of the road in our series in Ecclesiastes. And before I even do anything else, let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Your holy word that speaks to us, that transforms us, that gives us hope, that sets a vision of the future with you before us. Thank you for these glorious words. And Lord, this morning I ask for you to help your church, to shepherd your church as they listen to you speak, that they would hear your voice and they would meet face to face with you. And through that meeting, Lord, they would come away more aware of your love and your care for them. Lord, help me to clearly articulate these wonderful truths that you've provided for us that we might live by faith. In Christ's name, amen. Well, for the past four and a half months, we've been making our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and this morning, we finally come to its conclusion. It has been a long journey, and throughout this journey in Ecclesiastes, You've heard Devin say again and again, this is the hardest passage in all of Scripture to preach. (laughs) It has been a bit of a challenge, but this morning, unlike the rest of Ecclesiastes, the passage that we are going to study is straightforward, it is clear in its intention, and I think it will be easy for us to understand. And I want to give you my proposition for this passage at the outset, and that is to experience a joyful life in Christ, we must know the words of God, fearing Him, endeavoring to keep His commands for His glory and our good. To experience a joyful life in Christ, we must know the words of God fearing Him, endeavoring to keep His commands for His glory and our good. Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom written to the nation of Israel. And at its writing, Israel was a prosperous nation. And in their prosperity, they began to drift away from God. They became distracted by their commerce and their wealth and their pursuit of more. The preacher wrote Ecclesiastes to bring Israel back from its drifting and its wandering away. And he wants his readers to gain wisdom for how they should live before God. Not theoretical wisdom, but practical wisdom. And as the psalmist in 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. So look with me in chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, as the preacher, because we don't know who wrote Ecclesiastes. Some believe it's Solomon. Others have a different point of view. Some believe there are different authors But throughout Ecclesiastes, 
the writer is referred to as Koheleth, the Hebrew word for the preacher or the teacher. Beginning in verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings, and they are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Dante Alighieri is the author of the 14th century epic poem, Divine Comedy. It is a three-part poem, and the first you might be familiar with, called Dante's Inferno, followed by Purgatorio and Paradiso. Now, the Inferno, the first part of the poem, tells the journey of Dante through hell, guided by the ancient Roman poet named Virgil. In the poem, hell is depicted as nine concentric circles of torment located within the earth. It's the realm of those who have rejected spiritual values. The Divine Comedy is an allegory, much like Pilgrim's Progress, and represents the journey of the soul towards God, with the inferno describing the recognition and the rejection of sin. Man's pursuit of life on his own terms. Now the poem begins with Dante lost in the woods. And he comes upon the Roman poet Virgil who becomes his guide. And Virgil leads him to the gates of hell. And it is above the gates of hell that Dante sees these epic words. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Abandon all hope, ye who enter enter here. In Ecclesiastes, the preacher has taken us on a tour of the cursed world, cursed because of our sin, as we read about in Genesis 3. He has vividly described what life is like under the sun when we live it on our own terms rather than on God's. He has shown us the many dark places that we can go. And listening to the preacher's depressed view of life in this book, he often concludes that we too should abandon all hope. Because life under the sun, he says, is vanity. And vanity not meaning just vain, but vanity meaning brevity. That life is a vapor. Life is just a breath. That it it ends quickly. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And many times over these past months as we have worked our way through Ecclesiastes, a number of you have commented to me after the teachings how depressing Ecclesiastes is. And in some ways, that's been true. So as we close our series today, as we finish in Ecclesiastes 9, we come to something different. He's not mysterious. He's 
not confusing. He's not perplexing, but he's very clear in his words as he ends. This is the climax of the preacher's confession. Oh, what an what an amazing ending he has here. The, throughout the book, he has confessed both his failings as well as his discoveries about life. The preacher has shown us the brevity, the vanity of work. He has shown us the limitations of human wisdom. He's shown us the vanity and emptiness of hedonistic pleasure. He's shown us the vanity of power and the vanity of money. And most of all, he has shown us the, the vanity of death, which... He concludes, rightly so, consumes us all. The preacher wants us to see how brief, how meaningless life is without God in this world and how little joy there is under the sun when we do not remember, as he says in 12.1, the creator of our youth. But these words aren't just for ancient Israel. They're for us today. God, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so his word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his word, and these words in, in 12, 9 through 14 are speaking to you today. And rightly so, necessarily so, because we live in an individualistic and autonomous society that promotes and it exalts human freedom above all else. In just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Independence Day. Now, we've changed a lot in 240 years. We now have redefined tyranny, not the tyranny of a government, but we've redefined tyranny as anything that restricts us from doing what we want to do. The Christian community is not immune to this. Many cast off biblical boundaries by labeling, labeling them legalistic because they don't want to, they want to discard anything that impinges upon their freedom. And the preacher often in his writings, as you see, he casts off restraint. He pursues individual freedom throughout Ecclesiastes. And as a result, he comes to the conclusion that even with all the freedom he has, pursuing pleasure, pursuing money, pursuing wisdom, he comes to the conclusion that life under the sun, life without God, or life distant from God, is meaningless. It's vanity. It's empty. He begins the book with these words, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And he comes to 12.8 and he ends his section again with vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. It's called an inclusio it begin, at the beginning and at the end. That's how he comes to Douglas O'Donnell speaks of Ecclesiastes. He says this, Ecclesiastes describes not a brave new world, but a frightening old world still under the curse of Genesis 3. If you are a fallen human being living in this fallen world, Ecclesiastes was written to depress you. Has it worked? <laughs> it was written to depress you into dependence on our joyous God and his blessed will for your life. 
This book is God's reminder that if you are attempting to live the meaningful secular life, a life without absolutes, a life without out of values, without reference to God, a life that expects lasting satisfaction from earthbound things, you are attempting to grasp the unattainable. You are like a foolish child trying to catch the winds of a hurricane with the strands of a butterfly net. The best remedy for the depression caused by this realistic observation and experience of the world is not to pop pill after pill, but rather to digest once and for all the goodness of God. The ultimate remedy to meaninglessness and depression caused by a godless life is God. The Lord alone can fill the void in human hearts. This end or goal is precisely what we find at the end of Ecclesiastes. Unlike the sign over Dante's entrance into hell, the end of the matter, all is not vanity and hope is not lost. And vanity, brothers and sisters, vanity is not the last word. Instead, the preacher leads us to a place of hope and truth. In 12.11, he precisely tells us where that hope and truth resides. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails. Firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now, he is not speaking about Christ the Messiah. He doesn't know of the Messiah. But he is speaking about the shepherd. You see, he would not know of the shepherd that we know of as Christians from John 10, the good shepherd. But he would know of the shepherd from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And that is who he speaks of here. And it is capitalized, the word shepherd is capitalized because the translator knows that the writer is referring to God. And so it is the words of God that he is speaking of. And throughout this section, you see how many times he uses the word, word. The preacher sought to find words of delight. He uprightly writes words of truth. The words of the wise. It is the one shepherd who gives us these words. It is a shepherd that cares deeply for us and wants us to experience all the goodness that he offers. We know the shepherd of John 10 cares for his sheep and protects his sheep and feeds his sheep and lays down his life for his sheep. And although Israel does not know the voice of the shepherd of John 10, they do know the shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. And they are, these final words in 12.9 are to lead us from the dark depressing tunnel that the preacher has led us into when we began four and a half months ago is to lead us out of that dark tunnel to the shepherd, to the green pastures of God's kingdom. That's what he has designed, a place where we find genuine and true hope because we have the one shepherd, the true shepherd. And so my proposition is to experience a joyful life in Christ. We must know the words of God, fearing him, endeavoring to keep his commands, which are the words of God for his glory and our good. So the words of the shepherd in this final passage, passage three, three points that I want to make are this. They are words of delight that help us. They are words of truth that protect us. And they are words of guidance and warning 
that save us. Point one, they, these are words of delight that help us. Verses 9 and 10. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And so throughout Ecclesiastes, he has endeavored to teach you knowledge. The knowledge of good and evil. He's endeavored to teach you what it means to live life apart from God and to live life with God. He has endeavored to teach you what it means to follow your own pathway or to follow the pathway of God. He's done it in ways that don't always seem clear, but he's taken us there. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. And the preacher sought to find words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. The preacher wrote Ecclesiastes with the flair of a poet, the suspense of a novelist, and the wisdom of a teacher. He wrote poetically and creatively and vividly the, the delightful words that we would remember so that we would remember what he told us. And although this book was written more than 2,000 years ago, we still quote many things from Ecclesiastes today. They are words of delight. We use phrases, we do say vanity, vanity, all is vanity. We say to every season and then the turtles, which if you're over 60, you know who they are. If you're under 60, you probably don't. They're a band from the 60s. And they wrote a song called Turn, Turn, Turn from Ecclesiastes. We use a chord of three strands. Go to a wedding and how often do you hear that used? Or time and chance happen to us all. Or striving after the wind. Words that were written thousands of years ago, and yet they still impact us today. They, they still are memorable to us today. His words are, in Ecclesiastes, delightful and memorable. And for example, the preacher didn't just write, he didn't just say, listen, community is important. No, he delightfully says a threefold cord is not easily broken. That's what he means. He's talking about community there, not marriage. And when we think of community in this local church, we go back to Ecclesiastes and think, this is what binds us together. Or he doesn't write, don't think that life is just about possessing every earthly pleasure that money can buy. Instead, he says, pursuing such pleasure is striving after wind. What a word picture he paints for us. Striving. Somebody running after the wind. Trying to corral the wind. To, to take the wind and put it in a box. That's what pursuing money is like. You can't do it. It never satisfies. He made his preaching easy to hear so we would remember his words. Now, he didn't write to just tickle ears or as Paul writes, give to respond to itching ears. He wrote to open ears that we might hear God speak truth to us. 
He found a way to communicate truth clearly and interestingly. He did it. Ecclesiastes is a book, brothers and sisters, of delightful sayings filled with biblical knowledge. Well-arranged proverbs. I love that. He just says, weighing. He weighed what he was going to say. He weighed the words, the words of Ecclesiastes, the words in the book of Proverbs. These, these words are weighed. They weren't just suddenly penned, thrown on a piece of paper and sent into the publisher and we have another book printed. They were weighed and then they were arranged to have a continuity to them, to have a, a logic to them for our good. And not just Ecclesiastes, but the entire word of God has been arranged and weighed for your good. Words of truth meant to care for our souls. And all these words are ultimately meant to reveal not who we are, but who God is. To reveal His character, His perfect character, His flawless character, His beauty, His grace. And we learn about that as we listen to the preacher speak to us. Oh, these are words of delight that are meant to help us. Secondly, these are words of truth that are given to protect us. Look at verses 11 and 12. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son. And and that phrase right there, my son. You see that in Proverbs. You see the, the father and his love for a son to bring him to a place of wisdom and lead him away from a place of foolishness. These are, these are words of endearment, words of care and love. And these are, that's what is speaking. My son and my daughter, hear what I am saying in this passage today. My son, be aware of anything beyond these words, these collected words. Be aware. Be aware of anything, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of flesh. And I'll get to that in a moment. These first, these words were designed to set Israel back on the right path, to, to prod them, to prod them to return to God. The, the word goad literally means a cattle prod. It is, it, and it wasn't a cattle prod that, that harmed, but it was a cattle prod that caused pain. And it was designed to, the goads to, to be goaded is to be prodded. If you remember that phrase, to be goaded is to be prodded. If you remember in, in Acts 9, in, and it would be in the King James and I think the NASB, when Paul on the road to Damascus is knocked off his horse by this bright light, the, the question, the first question Paul is asked by the Lord Jesus is, why are you kicking against the goads? The Lord is goading him, prodding him for a purpose. The preacher's words are a goad. The the Bible is a goad to us. Its purpose is to prod us, to bring us back from straying. To prod us into believing. To prod us into trusting. To prod us into following. To protect us. Its purpose is to prod us when needed. These words are 
as the writer of Hebrews 4.12 says, and I will read Hebrews 4.12 to you. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is what the goading of God's Word does. It is active. It is living. It is piercing. It is discernful. And it is painful. The Bible is designed, it's meant to protect us from wrong thinking, from bad decisions and bad behavior if we allow it to do its work. It, it pricks our conscience. How often when you hear a teaching from Scripture does it suddenly just grab you? You're convicted or you're reading your Bible and, and the Lord just jumps out at the, out of the pages to you and, and something is, is there that that goads you, that prods you. These are words of life, brothers and sisters. They are God's word. God himself is speaking directly and personally to you. And it's, it's why the preaching of God's word is so crucial to our lives. It's why we must be faithful to be here on Sunday mornings. You know, you could spend your life listening to online preachers, never having to leave your home. But you will never experience pastoral preaching from them. And there's a difference between preaching and pastoral preaching. We all need a goad to prod us now and again. And who better to do it than your pastor? That's supposed to be like this, amen, (laughs) hallelujah, you know, like response. Who better to do it than your pastor? Secondly, these words are given by the good shepherd to anchor us to him. Look what he says. They're not just goads. They are like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings given by the one shepherd. Like nails firmly fixed. Like Think of like tent pegs that hold the tent in place. These words are designed to stabilize our lives. The world outside swirls around us with philosophies and perspectives and viewpoints that that have nothing to do or no connection to truth. But God's word, God's absolute truth, it's an anchor to our soul. It keeps us firmly fixed to who God is and to who we are and what we need. These are standards to live by that never waver, that never change, are always permanent because they are God's words. The Bible is our anchor. It's where we build our house, not on sand, but on rock. And when the storms come, and storms will come, we will not falter because these words will give stability and security to our lives. Now, no other book can do what the Bible does. There is no author, there's no human wisdom that can compete with the words of Scripture. Over a million books are written every year. Every year. And most contain empty human philosophies that are bankrupt. 
I love books. And I love to read. There's a place in Wales that Marilyn and I visited a number of years ago called Hay on Wye. The town of Hay on the Wye River. And the town was an old Welsh um, blue-collar town that reinvented itself. And the entire town, literally every shop, over a hundred shops, are all bookstores. It is a glorious place to visit. Except for my wife, who can't... We try to drag her from store to store and she just wants to camp in one store. And we would have to spend a year there for her to get through the stores. Hey on Why is an amazing place. There used to be a place in Knoxville called the Book Eddy. It was a warehouse filled with used books. We'd go to Knoxville to visit the Kittrells and the first thing we would do is we'd go to the Book Eddy. Why? Because we love books. But there is only one place truth can be found. And as the, the preacher says here, of the making many books, there is no end. Listen, there, there is ne- there's never going to be an end to me standing up here saying, oh, here's the newest book for you to read. This is a great book for you to read. Or seeing, I mean, Amazon. Amazon is a billion, billion, billion dollar company because people read books. And they buy a lot of other stuff, but they read books. But wisely, the preacher warns us with truth. He says this, there's always going to be a lot of books and much study is a weariness of flesh. In other words, if you spend all your time studying, it will wear you out. Now, it's not that we don't study. So if you were a college student, you just did not get a release from studying. That's not what I was saying. What he's trying to do here is to say, look, enjoy the books, but live here. Because you will never grow weary of truth. You will never grow weary of meeting with the Savior. You'll never grow weary. Cast your cares upon Him. His, all you who are weary and heavy laden, He will bear your burden. He will bear your burden. There is no self-help book, non-Christian or Christian, That is better than the word of God. Thirdly, these are words of guidance and warning that save us. Here we come to the summary of Ecclesiastes. And he goes in verse 13. He says, the end of the matter. All has been heard. In other words, I've said it all. I've written it all. Okay, now we come to the end of the matter. We come to the end of Ecclesiastes. We're finally there. We're finally there. When, when, when we would go on vacation, we lived in Charlotte, we'd go on vacation and we'd be gone for a week or, or two weeks. We took a cross-country trip once. I remember we came down our main street, Highland Creek Parkway, before we turned onto our street. And one of, my, one of my daughters said to me, oh, there it is. I said, there's what? And she goes, home hum. I said, home hum? She goes, yeah, that's the noise the car makes when it's getting close to home. It's home hum. This is home hum right here. The end of the matter all has been heard. 
How do we stay on the path of life until we arrive safely to our heavenly home? And he says it here, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the end of the matter. And he goes on to say, this is the whole duty of man. Actually, the word duty does not appear in the Hebrew. It literally in the Hebrew is, for this is the whole of man. And literally, this is man's essence. Man's essence is fear God and keep his commandments. And you can't keep his commandments if you don't know his commandments. So fear God. This is the whole of man. The Bible gives us a heavenly vision of what life is like beyond this world. It is a wonderful vision of the city of God that Scripture portrays for us that we would stay on the path. And much like the celestial city in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, we have the city of God in front of us as our ultimate goal. The words of the shepherd are designed to keep us on the path to the city until we arrive safely there. This is not the first time the preacher has instructed us to fear God. He told us in chapter 3 and 5 and 7 and 8 that if we fear God, it will go well with us. We are told also here to fear God because judgment awaits us all. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Since fearing God is the, is the central concept of wisdom literature. Again and again in Proverbs, we're exhorted, we're encouraged, we're implored, and we're warned that fearing God is the only path to life. Douglas O'Donnell says this, he says, to fear God simply refers to an attitude of submission to, respect for, dependence on, and worship of the Lord. It is a trembling trust. To fear God embodies faith and hope in God as well as a genuine love for Him. And when, by the gift of God, someone possesses the fear of God, sin loses its sweetness and strength. Obedience to the Word of God follows naturally because it becomes the delight of the soul. Therefore, the fear of God and obedience to His revelation, both in the Old and New Testament, the two inseparable com- are two inseparable components of genuine faith. The preacher warns us that to not fear the Lord and His commandments is to stand before the Lord one day in fearful judgment. So if you don't fear the Lord, you will fear the Lord at the day of judgment. If you're, and if you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you've not trusted in Christ, let me appeal to you. Christ has come. He has taken our sin upon himself on the cross. He died that we might be reconciled to God so that we could have a relationship with him. So that when we read this word, it would make sense to us. So that when we pray, we know God and have confidence that God hears from us. So that when we are reconciled to God, we have an eternal hope which is the glorious city of God. If you have not put your trust and faith in God, you have a fearful judgment that awaits you. A fearful judgment that includes the wrath of God and the punishment of hell. And you do not have to do that. You do not have to go there. 
It does not have to be a fearful and terrible day for you when a day, when every secret that you've held, every hidden thing you've done gets revealed at that moment. No, there is an eternity that can await you if you have come to faith, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you are a believer, you don't have to fear that condemnation of God's judgment. Jesus took that judgment. He took the curse of our sin and took the wrath of God and the punishment for our rebellion against him. And he paid the penalty with his own life for us. So fear judgment no more, brothers and sisters. You don't have to fear the judgment of God if you believe in Christ. A judgment of condemnation does not await you, but a judgment of commendation awaits you. Will you be commended by him on that final day for how you lived? Will you hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Will you receive the heavenly rewards he promises us? Why is judgment spoken of here? Because the point of Ecclesiastes is this. Everything we do matters. Everything we do matters. Every deed we do, every word we speak, every thought we have, it all matters to God. Throughout Ecclesiastes, the preacher has often said, nothing matters because it's all vanity. It all is vapor and there's, there's no hope beyond the grave. But the biblical truth is, is that everything does matter to God. So here's your application for the book of Ecclesiastes. We end with this. Consider each day. Consider each moment. Consider every one of your actions. Consider every thought you have. Consider every word you speak carefully. Because it all matters to God. To experience a joyful life in Christ, we must know the words of God, fearing Him, Endeavoring to keep his commands for his glory and our good. And let me tell you why we can do this. I'll end with one of my favorite passages. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. We know the voice of the Lord. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. I lay it down of my own accord. The good shepherd has spoken. The good shepherd cares for you. Father, thank you.
that you have sent your son as our shepherd. You are our shepherd. And we are able to lay down in green pastures beside still waters. You restore our soul for your name's sake. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. Amen.